The resurrection of the Lord Jesus marked a significant paradigm shift in the history of the world. God had finally fulfilled his Old Testament prophecies of the anticipated Christ and would now begin to reconstruct the world by loosing his army, his mighty Christian army, into the spiritual battlefield of the human race with Christ as the covenant head of his people, the eternal church. Our old covenant reading on this Lord's Day morning, this resurrection Lord's Day morning, coming from Psalm 110, Psalm 110, the entirety of the seven verses. By the inspiration of God, David pens the coronation theme, the military theme of the victorious Christ. By the inspiration of God, he says this, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Paul writing to the church at Corinth in his first epistle to the saints at Corinth, 1 Corinthians and chapter 15 beginning in verse 20 through verse 28. But the same spirit, Paul says this, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel of victory presented unto us again this day. Now throughout the entire Old Testament, the promise of global victory, not Israel's victory, not a localized victory, but the promise of a total global victory through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ was declared from Genesis 1 all the way through until the coming of Christ. Upon every page of the Holy Testament, in historical types and figures and prophecies and allusions, Jesus Christ fills the pages of Scripture. It was the promise of his coming and the promise of his victory that was longed for. The people of God understood that there would be a time when 
the Messiah would present himself to the world to bring liberation to the people of God. So it was the promise of his coming and his victory that was longed for to the extent that the prophets even identified the Messiah as the desire and the mercy promised. He was the desire of nations. It was what they desired more than anything else on this on this earth. They desired the Messiah's presentation. He was to them the mercy that God had promised and knowing that God's word is always kept, they were waiting for it. God encouraged his people that through the prophet Haggai, they would see that yes, God had it in his mind to bring this desire, to bring this promise. And that there would be a day when that day that they had longed for, it would finally be realized. It would be their desire come to pass in time and in history. Notice Haggai chapter 2 beginning in 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, O ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you, when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. This was a prophecy of the coming of Christ, and an allusion to the fact that he's going to shake the nations with the Pentecost, with the Spirit's coming. The faithful of Israel looked for this day. They looked for this day when Messiah would finally appear and where his influence and his impact would be universally felt. Notice, they understood that he would shake the nations, he would shake the heavens, he would shake the earth, he would shake the sea, he would shake the dry land. This was a comprehensive declaration. It wasn't just Israel that was going to be shaken. It wasn't just Israel that was going to be influenced. It was going to be a global event. It would be universally felt and acknowledged throughout the entire world. So the event prophesied was not to be localized. It was a world-shattering, globally recognized event which God called the shaking of the nations. Now this shaking was going to be global. That's the point. The earth, the sea, the heavens, the dry land, you, you name it, this is it. It was cataclysmic of what God would do. Notice what Israel heard from the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah tells them of a time when the victorious religion of Christianity will saturate the whole world. And you think about that even today. Christianity, starting out with 12 men and one of them was a betrayer, infects the entire global order like nothing else. Isaiah says this, and there shall be a rod coming forth out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This was a declaration of the coming of the Christ. This would be the kind of Messiah that they were waiting for. He would be of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he will judge righteously, with righteousness, Isaiah tells Israel, he will judge the poor and he will reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. 
But he also says this of this Messiah, this desire, this mercy promise, that he would also smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. This was Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Christ. The prophet Habakkuk confirms Isaiah's declaration. Notice what he says. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, almost verbatim of what Isaiah had said, that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So over and over and over, God is telling Israel, this is going to be an event that I have promised, and this will be an event that will happen. The patriarchs and the prophets, they they understood the nature of the coming of the Christ His first coming, and this is so important, not His coming at the end of the world, but His first coming as the coming of a victorious king. Not an impotent king. Not a king waiting to take power. Not a king waiting to take coronation rule, but a coronated king with power. As promised, this would become a reality when the fullness of time would come. When God would send His Son, as Paul writes to the church at Galatia, born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the condemnation of the law, at that specific time, God was going to send that promise, that desire, that mercy. And this actual conquest was inaugurated by the coming of the Lord at His birth, progressing throughout His victorious life, His obedient life, up to His resurrection victory by way of the cross. And at that point, He was preparing to bring many sons to regeneration by virtue of His regenerating resurrection power. Then finally, over time, gradually, from the time of Pentecost until the end of the world, gradually, throughout many generations of those who are obedient to the scriptures, the effectual work of the gospel would then result, final result of the effectual work of the gospel would be a global reconstruction of the world under the comprehensive authority and rule and power of the resurrected conquering Messiah. You see, that's what so many miss. This will happen gradually over time, provided the church remain obedient. Now, once that is completed, the totality of the world's inhabitants, according to Scripture, will bow, and they will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is very important for us to recognize because you cannot confess that Jesus Christ is Lord but by the Spirit. The wicked will never confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because they do not have the Spirit. So it seems that when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, at that very moment, at just before Christ, as Paul writes, delivers up the kingdom to the Father, every knee will bow calling Jesus Lord. And that will have to be by the Spirit. To reiterate, a very important doctrine. The resurrection goal was the creation not only of a new global order, gradually over time, but the means by which that global order would be realized was through the creation of an army of unimaginable proportions. It was to be an army of redeemed individuals. Those who would be forgiven of all of their iniquities, sanctified and empowered by the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, so as to go forth mightily, courageously, mind you, with the law and the gospel as the salt and light of the known world. 
It was to be that army that would stand as the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And it is not a mistake that God is calling us the soldiers of Christ. Because that is what we are, a spiritual army. Ezekiel explains who this army is and how it comes to be empowered. And we read of this in Ezekiel chapter 37. Notice the lengthy reading of this army's description. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel writes, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold, they were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. Notice, no water. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. Notice, they are slain, because they were slain in Adam, and Adam fell. So, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. The effect of the resurrection produced that army, the whole house of Israel, spiritual Israel, not the nation of Israel, not not that people across the sea, but the spiritual Israel, the people of God. This army produced by the breath of God, by the Spirit of God, obedient to the Word of God, is an army which is one of ethical conformity to the divine commandments and one which is strengthened by the power of the Spirit. They understood that as the Father had sent Christ, so send are they. It is this regenerated, this consecrated and sanctified army that wages what is known as the spiritual battle, a spiritual battle against humanism, the humanism of this world, the tyranny of this world, the wickedness of this world by the sword of the Spirit. But what kind of army is this? Because when I speak of the army, I'm speaking of you. I'm speaking of all those who call themselves Christians, who are truly Christians. What kind of army is it? Well, if it's going to be an obedient army, an army after the will of God and after the law of the Lord, it has to be a focused army. Focus. Not distracted, but focused upon that commission. It also is a commissioned army. You did not send yourself. It is God who sent you. 
but it must also be a self-sacrificing army for the glory of their Lord and King. And it is and must be an army that is not afraid to confront the enemies of the gospel, even if it means much suffering. And that's something that we must get into our minds. And it is this army, and only this army, that has given divine authority and power to tread upon the serpents and the scorpions of rebellious mankind. It's an army of tenacious resolve, one of power, one of passion, an army of of people who love the Lord Christ and who are committed to His ways. Now many of the Jews in Christ's day, even, even many Christians in our day, either see the promise of victory only as spiritual or even only political, but both extremes are in error. While the promise includes the spiritual as the initiating point vis-a-vis the new birth of souls by a way of the regeneration of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, it goes further to include all cultural, political, economic, scientific, academic, ecological, every institution and area known to human existence. In other words, if Christ is the victorious king, he's victorious over everything. We can never compartmentalize his victory just to the spiritual soul, to your soul, to my soul, to my spirit, to your spirit. It is bigger than just us. So when the scripture uses the term spiritual, it means that organic power which is not of the earth, it's not carnal, it's not sensual, but it is a power that comes directly from a divine source poured out upon the earth in order to transform the earth by the transformation of the people of God who are to be transformed by that spirit. And so whenever we consider the resurrection, which is the center and the crux of Christianity, we must also recognize that Christ's victory over death is only the beginning point of his victory over all things. Note the apostle's explanation of the totality of this victory. He says this, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, no matter what what it is on this earth, all things were created by him and for him and he is above all things or before all things and by him all things consist. As it has been stated so often, if Christ is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. If the resurrection did not secure a total victory, Paul could never say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and having spoiled, and notice the tense, the Greek tense, it's past tense, looking at the resurrection, looking at the the victory of Christ, and having spoiled, past tense, principalities and powers, and those principalities and powers refer to statist governments, all tyrannical governments, all human wickedness. So this is a past tense reality. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Victorious over them. Notice, not going to be victorious over them, he is at present victorious over them. And gradually showing this openly. Nor could John claim that Christ is the king now. For he is For he is, for he is, and I emphasize is, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Not he will be Lord of Lords, he will be King of Kings. No, he is the Lord and he is the King. If Christ had not been totally victorious, then Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 has not been realized. And yet Peter, referring precisely to Psalm 110, states that that psalm was fulfilled by the initial coming of the Lord at his incarnation and of course 
in light of his resurrection victory. Notice what he says, Acts chapter 2, 34 and following. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Referring right back to Psalm 110. Theologian and biblical scholar Martin Sobretti comments, he says, Why is Psalm 110 so important? Because it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Its frequency of citation underscores its import. It is a powerful text. Now Psalm 110 is a psalm of lordship and sovereignty. It was quoted throughout the sojourning of the Lord for a very particular reason, in order to impress upon the people that the promised victor had come. In order to impress upon the Roman Empire that there was another king superior to the Roman Empire and every other human authority, every other authoritative figure for that matter, Jesus reiterates the psalmist's prophecy to the masses, which eventually entered into the ears of the scribes, Pharisees, and the Roman elite. And that's what enraged them. Psalm 110 was and is to this day an indictment against all that seek to diminish the lordship of the holy God by replacing it with the lordship of fallible man, much like today. The religious leaders of Christ's day, in his time, had succumbed to the Roman state to the point where they blessed it and bowed at its feet. Oh, they kept a facade of religiosity. They kept a a facade of Yahweh. But they really had their allegiance to the Roman state because the Roman state was giving them their credentials and allowing them to remain an independent nation. So they kowtowed to the state much like churches today. And it was into this situation in particular. And I always ask myself, why did not Christ enter into history during the Assyrian reign or or the reign of Egypt or uh, the Babylonian reign? Why the Roman? Because the Romans seemed to have the corner on what tyranny was really all about and how to implement it. So he injects himself into the situation of Rome, a situation of extreme ecclesiastical apostasy and extreme statism, a situation where we even today find ourselves. Ecclesiastic apostasy and extreme statism. The Puritan Owen Chadwick observes, he says, and you think these are the Puritans that really didn't have too much statism breathing down their necks. And yet he says this, government likes religion to bless its acts, crown its dictators, sanction its laws, define its wars as just, and be decorous masters of national ceremonies. And since on grounds of religion, religious men may criticize acts of law or wars or modes of waging war, government prefers for the church to be quiet and contemplative rather than excessive in their zeal. This was the mindset of the religious rulers of the day. Quiet, contemplative, and not very zealous until the rebel Jesus Christ begins to shake the nation. The Pharisees wanted no 
confrontation with the Roman rulers so they remain quiet and complacent. The state wants us to do this, we shall do this. The state wants us to do that, we will do that. Any activity which might be reminiscent of zeal for the Lord and for the kingdom was frowned upon and if possible, squelched. So these apostate status clergymen, which is an oxymoron, but they were status clergymen, sequestered their religious beliefs into the realm of piety and personal devotion. Me and my Bible. It's just really about me and my Bible. I'm just waiting for Jesus to take me away when I die or in the rapture or what have you. But to get out there and to start pushing my religion, well, you know, I don't want to offend anyone. But the gospel is offensive, isn't it? So the apostates... Status clergymen, they sequestered their religious beliefs into the realm of personal devotion and piety while turning a blind eye to Rome's quest to usurp the one true king, the God of nations. I am just amazed that there was not a comprehensive outcry by all of the churches saying the state has limits and you have just gone beyond your limits with your declaration against the church. But we don't hear anything. We hear crickets. So by tolerating evil, the Pharisees, the clergymen of Christ's day, became accomplices to the evil. There's no such thing as neutrality. If the church does not step up and speak up against tyranny and the encroachment upon Christ's crown and covenant, they are complicit in that tyranny, in that statist evil. And so when Christ and his disciples expounded the truth of God's lordship over men and nations, they were indicted as revolutionaries and they killed Christ. Notice Acts chapter 17, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the base of sort and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are now come hither also. Isn't that something? Their world was topsy-turvy. Their world was upside down. What Jason and the others were trying to do was turn it right side up and they said you were turning it upside down. And Jason and the others troubled the people and the rulers of the city. R.J. Rushton, he observes this. He says, It is the Christian who is increasingly viewed as the enemy of the state as he stands in terms of the crown rights of Christ the King, he thereby challenges the sovereign claims of the state in the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Increasingly, in the eyes of the sovereign state, this is the unforgivable sin. Thank God. So Christ's entrance into the realm of time and history marked his entrance as the conquering king. No longer the coming king. No longer was he coming. He had come. He was here. And here he was now conquering the enemies of his kingdom. He entered into the realm of time and history to accomplish all that the prophets had declared. He came to bring the promise of God into effect. There's no mention anywhere where the work of Christ is ultimately frustrated by the enemies of the gospel at the end of the age where Christ must then once again, because he failed the first time, intervene into the realm of history to overcome the enemies of the gospel. No, he came and he overcame. The psalmist testifies this. 
Psalm 2, 6 and following, yet I have set my king. Notice, this is what God is doing. This is what God has done. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord had said unto me. Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And that word heathen is the word nations. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. The uttermost parts of the earth. What is included in that? Everything. Everything. Christ purchases everything. He sees a pearl of great price and he buys the field. And as the scriptures declare, the field is the world. But this conquest had to take a certain path, of course, in order to be universally effective. First, of course, he had to enter into history as, into history as a man in order to change history through the redemption of men. Second, his burden was to bear the sin of his elect so as to cleanse them of their sins, which he did at the cross. This would qualify them, this would consecrate them, this would sanctify them, and this would also equip them as his holy army so as to enter into his service as ambassadors and soldiers in the kingdom work. Thirdly, the resurrection accomplishes more than a security for the elect salvation and regeneration. It secures an authority and power for each of God's redeemed that spans the entirety of the New Testament age until the kingdoms of this world finally and totally become the kingdoms of this Christ. And this is where John is speaking. This is his intention. He is speaking of the time during the New Testament age where gradually Christ is putting down all rule and all authority. Notice his intent here in Revelation 12, Revelation 11. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Now remember, when did the kingdom finally come? At the Passover. He said that he would not eat, he wouldn't drink again until he drinks it anew in the kingdom. And after the resurrection, what does he do? Three times he eats and he drinks. One time at the, on the road of Emmaus, and then another time when Peter was fishing, and then he ate with them, and they believed. The kingdom had come. So when John says, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, he was seeing what has happened. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this was also the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 22, verse 27, who saw the day of Christ's victory over sin and death and associated it with the comprehensive victory and conquest over the global order, the entirety of the world. Notice, Psalm 22, 27, and 28. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. That is a comprehensive statement. All the ends of the world. And all the kingdoms of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. So this is what God is saying happened when Christ rose from the dead. Now these truths prompted the apostle to concur with the psalmist in Romans chapter 14 and Philippians chapter 2. Notice, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess, notice the comprehensive nature, every tongue, every knee, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So whenever the church seeks to compartmentalize or diminish the reality and ultimate goal of Christ's resurrection, it becomes culturally irrelevant and its cultural power and influence withers. Once we hide in the church, once we become afraid of men and those in power, the church dies. Once the church becomes culturally, legally, politically, economically, scientifically, and philosophically irrelevant, the societal order begins to collapse, it begins to unravel, and ultimately it disintegrates into chaos, which always evolves into tyranny. And ultimately, tyranny brings slavery. And yet Christ has liberated us from that. And yet we refuse to embrace that liberation. The modern church has made the same mistake as the church leaders of Christ's day. Today's modern church is still waiting for the king to come, to conquer, when in fact already he has come. And all that is needed by his body is to be obedient. Because we are his church, we are his body, we are his soldiers, we are his army. The church of the 21st century can no longer deny that Jesus is the realization of the promised deliverer. If and when they do so, it is both at their peril and at the peril of an entire nation. And we are seeing that today because of the churches pulling back from the culture. Christ's resurrection not only launched and secured the resurrection and regeneration of his elect, it was the first installment for the revitalization and the reconstruction of the entire cultural order, which began at Pentecost. Because it was at Pentecost where the power of God was unleashed upon the world, when it was actually manifested in the world in real time. And that began the cultural revitalization. Christopher Dawson gives this clear direction in the effort of cultural revitalization. He says, Christian culture involves a ceaseless effort to widen the frontiers of the kingdom of God. Not only horizontally, by increasing the number of Christian converts, but vertically, by penetrating deeper into human life and bringing every human activity into closer relationships with his spiritual center. It is still the individual mind that is the creative force which determines the ultimate fate of cultures. And the first step in the transformation of culture is a change in the pattern of culture within the mind. For this is the seed out of which there spring new forms of life which ultimately changes the social way of life and thus create a new culture. That is what we are to be involved in, changing the minds of the people. But the problem is, the wicked are changing the minds of the people and we're standing idly by. It was at Pentecost, which is the Feast of Ingathering, where the redeemed began to fulfill Christ's prayer when he prayed for many laborers to come into the field because the field was white for harvesting. Notice, then said he unto his disciples, Lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The harvest truly is plenteous, but their laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now he did that at Pentecost. That was the mission of the New Testament church, to bring laborers. And they had to be sanctified. They had to be coronated as Christ was coronated that they would be kings under the king of Christ that they would be his body his church that they would go into the world with the gospel as laborers in the field now within this commandment there is no indication 
whatsoever that the church has to wait for some miraculous second appearing of the Lord in order to be victoriously effective. God's people are to work as laborers now, in the field now, changing the minds of men by the gospel of Christ, teaching them, declaring the truth, because the truth will set them free if they would embrace the truth by the Spirit of God. So we are to work as laborers in the field of the world so as to conform the culture to the glorious gospel and righteous law of God by the preaching that the kingdom of God is here and there is a new king over all kings and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul picks up on this idea in 1 Corinthians 3.9. Notice what he says. For we are laborers together with God. Picking up on what Christ said. Laborers in the field. Bring forth laborers. We are those laborers. We are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Now, how do we do that? What, what, how does that happen? Consider the means by which the saints function as productive laborers. Well, in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be given the means to produce the ultimate cultural victory promised. It's not like we're waiting for God to do something. God has already done something. Notice what he says to them. In Luke 10, 19, Behold. And remember, whenever God used the word behold, he's saying, pay attention, open your eyes. Here it is. I'm giving it to you right now, very clearly. Behold, I give unto you, and that's a very important phrase. When God gives something, it's very special even as God gave His only begotten Son. That was special. This is special too. By virtue of the resurrection of Christ, God gives us this. I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, I'm giving you legal ability I'm giving you power. I'm giving you privilege. I'm giving you force, capability. I'm giving you competency, freedom of mastery over all magistrates, all superhuman potentates. I'm giving you total control, a delegated influence of authority, jurisdiction, liberty, power, right, and strength. That is what is intended by this scripture. Notice, it's a gift, a divine gift. It's also a delegated power to a very specific group. I give unto you, you in particular. I give unto you this authority. But it's given for a very special purpose. Notice, to use it against serpents and scorpions. Now, throughout the scriptures, serpents are always bad. The Pharisees were likened to serpents. Wickedness likened to serpents. When Christ was the serpent on the pole, it was because he took upon himself our sins. Serpents and scorpions, those evil people, those evil teachings, those evil philosophies, that is what is intended. I give you delegated force, capacity, competency, and power over these serpents and these scorpions. And over all, if that wasn't enough, over all the power of the enemy... And this is given with the intent that through the obedience of God's people, God's kingdom will be advanced by destroying the wicked of the world through the preaching of the gospel. So as a result of the resurrection, the saints are guaranteed, provided, and here's a caveat, provided they are obedient to the gospel, 
provided they are obedient, they are guaranteed a transfer of power and authority from Christ so that they may act in His stead against the evil of the world. But what does the church do today? They wring their hands. You do not understand. We have lost the understanding that when we speak God's word, that is power. There is power in the word. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 24, 49, and behold, and there's that word again, behold, this is very special now. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. I'll give you a, an analogy. You win a brand new Ferrari. A brand new Ferrari. And all you do with that Ferrari is start it up. And that's even impressive. All you do is start it up and you leave it in the garage. And you go, wow, isn't this great? And you rev that engine a little bit. This is so good. Ferrari had this this $175,000 vehicle, maybe more. And then you shut it off and you go home and you're just feeling so good about yourself. I got this Ferrari. Friends, you have a Ferrari. And as I have said so many times before, most Christians treat it like a lawnmower. Like that Ferrari in the garage, they start it up, they feel so good about themselves, I have the Word of God, I can debate this doctrine and that doctrine and the other theology and this... But it is not powerful unless it gets on the road. Then it becomes impressive. Therefore, every born-again child of God must execute this power and authority in order for things to change. The promise of this victory is the essential element of Christianity. Now let's consider for a moment what it means to establish the crown rights of Christ over all aspects of the created order. We talk about this all the time. The crown rights of Jesus. What does that even mean? Well, the initial step is to acknowledge the fact, well, the initial step is to acknowledge the fact and temporal reality of His Lordship, which implies the disavowing of all illegitimate tyrannical powers. The disavowing. In other words, we have to say, no, that is illegitimate, we will not bow. My friend Matt Truella often says, refusing to wear a mask tells the state that their authority is limited. The kingly authority of Christ is a reality which is active in the world today and which is declared by the believer's obedience to the law of God in conjunction with the refusal to obey any other perceived authority that it stands against the word of God. When it stands in direct opposition to that law, we ought to obey God rather than men. And the activity of His Lordship, dominion, power is not something that takes place at a future event. It is now. His Lordship activity is here and now and has been effective globally since the day that the world was created, but even more so now since the pouring out of His evangelical spirit at Pentecost, that culture invigorating, and I'm using these words very carefully, Culture invigorating. Has our culture been invigorated? Is our culture being invigorated by the Church of Jesus Christ that stands pietistically in the four-wall ghettos, building bigger gymnasiums, building swimming pools, and, and this tennis court and that tennis court, and doing all of these things? Are we being culturally invigorating? That is what the gospel is supposed to be about. We are to bring about a new age of evangelical culture invigorating power. John Calvin said this, 
it is obvious that every year, month and day, is governed by a new and particular providence of God. And indeed, God asserts his possession of omnipotence and claims our acknowledgement of this attribute, not such as is imagined by sophists, vain, idle, and almost asleep, but vigilant, efficacious, operative and engaged in continual action, not a mere general principle of confused motion, as if he should command the river to flow through the channels once made for it, but a power constantly exerted on every distinct and particular movement. For he is accounted omnipotent, not because he is merely able to act, but because he governs heaven and earth by his providence and regulates all things in such a manner that nothing happens but according to his counsel. So how do we do this? Consider how the saint actually establishes a God-honoring cultural order. Well, it's all about reorganizing. Reorganizing the world's institutions, ultimately, so that each of them conforms to the scriptural model. The faith of Christianity is a faith for all aspects of life. The kingdom of earth should be modeled, if it's going to be peaceable, if it's going to be righteous, if it's going to be just, if it's going to be equitable, it should be modeled after the kingdom of heaven, which means it is divinely righteous, just, and equitable, and everyone is treated well. Not chaotic, not not overbearing, but perfect. But in order to begin, at least let's think about beginning by re-educating people, this requires dedication Dedicated service, which has attached to it sacrifice, self-sacrifice, and, of course, much suffering. But we, in our day, in the 21st century, we do not understand what dedication is all about. We're dedicated to our own agendas, but are we dedicated to the agenda of God? The church must set the course to reorganize the many spheres of the societal order so that they realign with their God-ordained purpose. Then they will function properly. That means that each sphere of society, every area of life, every institution, which makes up the culture, the family, the church, and the state, everything must follow a biblical, biblical rule. So the church must be the tip of the spear. And the problem is it's not. It's just not. The church must educate to that end. It means that the family has to take responsibility for teaching and training their children without the interference of the statist indoctrination and the humanistic agenda. Fathers and mothers, if I have said this once, I say this a thousand times. I said this over and over because it's so dreadfully important. If you do not have your house in order, the church will be at a loss to be organized properly. It is up to you, not your wife. Although she assists, it is up to you. You are to lead your family in the things of God. The family comes first. Then the church. When the family is in order, the church can be in order. It means that the church needs to reassume the responsibilities. And there's that key word, responsible. Today, everybody says, well, I'm not responsible for that. I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't have to do this. No, that's not my job. 
That's my wife's job. That's my husband's job. That's the pastor's job. That's the elder's job, the deacon's job. It's somebody else's job. It's never my job. We need to take responsibility if we're going to call ourselves Christians. So the church needs to reassume the responsibility of individual and social mercy within the realm of society by reacquiring the areas of service that the state has commandeered and by taking back those areas, the areas of mercy and education, the state will be forced to reign in its overbearing control and involve itself only in the areas that are sanctioned by the word of God. Now, During the days of the first century church after Pentecost, paganism was, was abundant. Sort of like the day in which we live. The subsequent years of the church would find itself more and more persecuted to the extent that many would doubt whether or not Christ truly had vanquished his enemies. They were living in a day like our day. Christ says, I'm victorious, I'm, I'm, I'm the conqueror. The apostles said, yes, he's the conquering king. And all they see is localized persecution, emperor-wide persecution, the burning of Christians, the martyring of Christians, left and right by all of these horrible, horrible Caesars. And of course, the natural question would be, wait a minute, maybe we've got our doctrines wrong. Maybe our ducks aren't quite in a row as we thought. Maybe Christ does have to come again to fix it. Maybe his first coming was not as efficacious as we think it is. Well, the Hebrew writer, he anticipated that when he wrote to the believers who were in the midst of status domination, martyrdom and great persecution, speaking of Christ, he tells them this, in Hebrews 2, 7 and following, Thou madest him, Christ, a little lower than the angels. But notice what he says, Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. That's dominion. So if you're confused, that's what he did. That's what God did. He made him a little over the angels and he crowned him. He coronated him with glory and honor. And if you're going to put that together with dominion and power in the kingdom, then you have the full boat. That was put. Notice the next line. An amazing line to even think this or say this in the midst of such extreme persecution. Thou hast put, past tense, all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he had put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So if you're mistaken as far as how much is under him, I'm going to tell you he left nothing that is not under him, in subjection to him. But then he anticipates the question. The question is then why are we in such a mess? Why is this such chaos? Why are they putting good for evil, evil for good, boys for girls, girls for boys, this for that and the other thing? He says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. We're not seeing it. It's there It's in effect, but we're not seeing its full effect. We're not seeing the fullness. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Why would he say that? Who was made a little lower than the angel for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. But what are you seeing when you see Jesus? What were they seeing when they saw Jesus? They were seeing the resurrected Christ. They were seeing the king crowned with glory and honor. They were seeing Jesus so that they would always have their eye upon Jesus. Remember, it was a focused army. And what are they focusing upon? The fact that Christ is at war with the enemies and we are working with him at war with the enemies of the gospel. So we see this Jesus who's crowned with glory and honor, given dominion and a kingdom. 
So despite all that we see in the here and the now, the resurrection of the Christ absolutely secured total victory over all enemies of the gospel. So that by the end of the New Testament age, whenever that is, gradually over many generations which are obedient, then, whenever that is, every knee will finally bow in subjection to His Majesty. For He must reign, Paul says, until He has put all enemies under His feet. Alright, one final thought. The Scriptures teach what is known as the principle of gradualism. Gradualism is accomplished through the work of God in a developmental expansionism through the faithful and diligent work of the church. It happens over time. David said, In waiting I shall wait. The total and comprehensive victory of Christ of the world is not accomplished through a catastrophic, interventionalistic type fashion like the Great Flood or the Red Sea deliverance, but through day-to-day operations, year by year, generation by generation. That's the process. We see this doctrine fleshed out in Genesis 1, where God could have created everything in one day. He does it gradually over six days, six 24-hour days. In Genesis 3.16, Adam has promised redemption, and yet there's a long wait through a gradual development and a gradual unfolding of the plan of God in history. The Bible is also gradually written over 1,500 years, growing in grace. After regeneration, after salvation, we grow in grace. We are growing and learning every day. That's gradual. We're not given all knowledge all at once. Likewise, the kingdom of God. It comes incrementally in a gradual fashion. Little by little, Moses tells us that the Lord says that he will put out the nations before him little by little, day by day. Gradualism is seen in the following passages of Daniel 2, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 47, Matthew 13, 1 John, Mark 4, Matthew 13, Matthew 33, Ezekiel 17, and in Matthew 16, 18, Christ promises that the kingdom will not be frustrated, nor will the expansion of the kingdom be stopped. Upon this declaration that I am the rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So Christ's resurrection, it's not simply he saves us, and he promises us heaven. Christ's resurrection shouts total conquest over all things. And this is happening now. It began at Pentecost and it continues till the end of the world when finally the church claims dominion. But they can only do this if they take the dominion mandate seriously. The resurrection is the hope of the gospel and it's the only hope of the world. Christopher Dawson once again observes this. A Christian civilization is certainly not a perfect civilization, but it is a civilization that accepts the Christian way of life as normal and frames its institutions as the organs of a Christian order. Such a civilization actually existed for 1,000 years, more or less. It was a living and growing organism, a great tree of culture which bore rich fruit in its season. Our modern civilization is not a Christian one. It is the result of 200 years of progressive secularization during which the distinctively Christian institutions and social standards have been gradually eliminated. You see, gradualism works both ways. Gradualism works both ways. It could be advanced or diminished. He continues, 
We have lost that spiritual vision man formerly possessed for a secular civilization that has no end beyond its own satisfaction is a monstrosity, a cancerous growth which will ultimately destroy itself. The only power that can liberate man from this kingdom of darkness is the Christian faith. Beloved of the Lord, we have much work to do and it requires work, girding up of the loins of our mind and sacrifice. So the question is, what will you do? Will you seek to spend the rest of your life reestablishing the doctrine of Christ's regal authority and his revealed word as the infallible and absolute truth? The commission is to us. May God be pleased to re-instruct his people in the truths of his total and comprehensive sovereignty, his comprehensive lordship, and his comprehensive power that they may once again be encouraged to go forth valiantly knowing that they've been given power to tread upon serpents and scorpions unto the universal and comprehensive advancement of his world kingdom on earth, in time, and in history. And this we shall do because this is what we must do unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.